Hello, thank you for joining us. It's a very special friendly reminder episode. Uh, my name is Gus and I'll be your host for the evening. We're gonna do a once in a year review of 2020 and I brought some dear friends to join me today. Daniel, how are you today? Good, Gus, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Sam, how are you today? Ready and running. Good to hear. Nack, welcome back. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. This is your po- this is your first post-election episode, isn't it, with us? Is it really? I believe so. Is that true? Dang. How do you feel now? Th- <laughs> yeah, you know how do you feel one? now that now that we've solved everything, you know? Oh, it's good. Yeah. Now that it's all uh wrapped up, put a bow on it. Yeah. We're yeah. done. It was good. Politics is done, baby. You guys really don't even need this podcast anymore. I feel like politics has been solved. Yeah. (laughs) Like tic-tac-toe. Time to retire. Yeah. Guys, what a year. What a season. What a season it's (laughs) been. 2020. What a clusterfuck. What a shit show. How can we describe this year? Like, Are there any nice words we can say about 2020? We're going to have to come up with them because we're going to recap the entire year. Uh, not really, but I did select about six stories that I feel define the year. We're going to go back. We're going to talk about it. We're going to reflect on it, uh, you know, in hindsight, because hindsight is 2020. Let's get started, though. So, again, we're going to talk about six stories. We're going to reflect on it. And the first story... This is really the only pre-COVID story of of the list. Uh, it did it's only partially pre-COVID. It did kind of overlap with COVID, but I'm of course talking about the Democratic prim- primary that started the year. So let's just little history lesson. Let's go ahead and kind of recap the the Democratic primary because it was interesting. It was obviously a very large field at the beginning. Um, lots of candidates um, trying to win the presidential election. Uh, you know, there it, it went kind of back and forth before the actual votes. Uh, Kamala Harris kind of had a moment in the in the primary debate taking on Joe Biden, which is kind of funny thinking about it now. Um, Elizabeth Warren was up in some of the polls for, for a little bit uh, in New Hampshire, for example. Um, but really, the race kind of went down t- to Bernie Sanders, and the moderate lane for, for, for a good while. It's just that that moderate lane was, was spread across several candidates. But for a while, Bernie Sanders actually looked like he was, he was quite formidable. Um, he, he got the most votes in Iowa. There's the whole thing with like he tied with the delegates because it's a stupid system. And Buttigieg was claiming that he won Iowa. Uh, but Bernie Sanders then went on to win New Hampshire. And he went on to win Nevada. And for a time, it was like, wow, is, is Bernie Sanders really going to be the Democratic primary's nominee? And then he hit a wall in South Carolina, where Joe Biden had quite the comeback. He had a strong result there. And then it went on to Super Tuesday, where Joe Biden got victories in, in big states like Texas. Bernie did win California, but he didn't get the results he he needed. And after that, there was no looking back. Joe Biden just pretty much wash the floor after or wipe the floor with with Bernie Sanders after that in, in major states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. So he went on to 
of course, become the Democratic nominee. Well, it's noteworthy that Bernie, you know, those were the Bernie states that supposedly Bernie had all kinds of strength in that was that was reflected in 2016 when he, you know, uh, out of nowhere whomped Hillary. It, it was Michigan, right, where he out of nowhere hit beat Hillary and everyone was like, oh, shit. Shit, it's real. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> so everyone was like, oh, Bernie's got this like secret, uh, I guess, working class base or or moderate. I, I don't know what exactly the theory was, but they thought he had all this like sort of Midwest, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin support. Um, and then uh, it turned out that support was maybe softer than we realized, or it was uh, more of an anti-Hillary vote in 2016 than it was a pro Bernie vote because uh, he did worse in Michigan than he did in 2020 um, against Joe Biden. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting thinking about it because it, the way I see it looking back, it didn't seem like the Bernie camp had necessarily a plan on how to contend with one moderate nominee. I think the plan was always to kind of uh, hope that uh, there was always going to be like two to three moderates uh, kind of splitting the vote and Bernie can keep winning, just getting that 25 to 30 percent threshold. Um, but that changed after South Carolina, uh, Buttigieg dropped out. Klobuchar dropped out. Uh, Beto O'Rourke endorsed Joe Biden. He had already dropped out by then, but he endorsed Joe Biden. Um, and it was it was this uh, the moderate leg just coalesced together. And and after that, it was it was too much for for the Bernie Sanders coalition. But it seemed like the strategy was not to try to appeal to the sort of moderate existing Democratic voters. I feel like he kind of maybe thought, well, I got that locked up, not locked up in the way that I sort of needed to win, but locked up in as much as I'm going to get. And then he tried to appeal to like low propensity Hispanic. Like he tried to appeal to voters that were not normally going to come out and vote in the primary, uh, which is that set that second tactic. I feel like that's where he failed because I don't think that happened at all. In fact, I think it was quite the opposite. I think the new primary voters actually ended up going a lot more moderate than, than before, because I think a lot of them were independents or or more Republican-leaning independents that that were, for whatever reason, coming out in favor of, or going to the Democratic Party and making it more moderate. Um, but either way, you know, the whatever the strategy was, it obviously failed. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, we can talk about whether whether you know it was the uh, whether it really was Bernie's fault or whether it was the the establishment that took him down. <laughs> It was stolen from him. Yeah, it was stolen. Uh, well, well, so that's the, that's the argument, right? Well, go ahead. Well, I think like I don't think it's that much of a conspiracy theory to say that there was probably some calls being made by more established Democrats, perhaps former presidents, <laughs> talking to each other <laughs> and trying to you know maybe talk to Buttigieg and talk to Klobuchar and be like, hey. You can't win, right? Like in South Carolina, it's proven that the the black vote goes strongly towards Joe Biden, and if you can't win that vote, you're you're not going to be the Democratic nominee. So, just drop out. Let's make sure that Joe Biden is our guy, and afterwards, you know, you're going to get maybe some nice cabinet positions, like I don't know, Secretary of Transportation, perhaps. And yeah. I think I don't, th I don't I think happen? that I. 
Yeah. We don't know, right? Like, well, I mean, no, like, Buttigieg got Secretary of Transportation. Oh, right, that happened, but we don't know if there <laughs> were calls being made. But I don't think it's like outlandish. But that's not no, not at all. Yeah, stealing it from Bernie Sanders. Like Bernie Sanders needed some kind of plan, whether it's it's trying to get some moderate voters or bringing in those new voters to be able to to kind of stop a strong moderate nominee, which he eventually ended up facing. I'm sorry, but one of the candidates using all the strings he got. So I guess you can argue yes, because it was an establishment move that it that it was sort of the establishment putting its thumb on the scale. That's true. I I, I don't think that's wrong. But on the other hand, it's just sort of a flavor of politics. Like, how do you how does anybody coordinate like the the leftists seem to be pointing at the fact that there were calls. Like, how, how do they expect people to coordinate anything in politics if they don't speak to one another, I guess? Is, like, what do they think politics is other than forming coalitions and inherently unstable coalitions? I think it might go back to this whole idea that I feel like not all of the Bernie folks, but a lot of the Bernie folks felt like, well, you can't make a coalition unless you agree with us <laughs> on everything. So it's it's kind of an extension of, of that almost because it's like, Oh yeah, you know this this Buttigieg and Klobuchar—they're all species of the establishment. Which is, you know, Klobuchar was a, is a species of the establishment. Buttigieg is is somewhat a species of the st- establishment, but somewhat not really a species of the establishment. You know, he's kind of a new a new figure on the scene. So I, I don't know if it's as easily. And Nack, maybe you disagree with this, and you and you're willing to say more straightforwardly that this is like gross political horse trading or or some sort of scheme Mm, i well so to go back to what you were saying about the um how leftists were not willing or, or or wanting people to agree with everything i think that's just leftism (laughs) like i think we just see that across the board when it and that's kind of like I say that jokingly, but also that is kind of, it's like, no, you know, abolish the police, you know, not, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's, it's that sort of, um, all or nothing clarity, clarity. And it is, it's a moral clarity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a lot easier for me to list off the stuff that the leftists believe in and that, right. Uh, that for example, Joe Biden Bernie Sanders <laughs> believes in than Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> um, does Joe Biden believe in anything? Maybe That's not. The real question. He believes in Republicans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming to their senses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But to go back to um, what you were, what you asked me, or I don't know. I, I guess I don't know what. I guess majority of leftists would say about whether whether it was a coordinated. Illegitimate oh, or yeah, illegitimate. yeah, 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 illegitimate or legitimate. And I think ultimately that's not even really a question for them. It's not really a question for me because if you are a leftist, you're kind of used to looking at things through a lens of systems of. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, hierarchy, yeah, capital. This you know, is capital, yeah, coalescing together to fight the right. left, right? Yeah. Uh, now, whether it's legitimate or not, it's sort of 
beside but, the point. I guess yeah. it's inherently illegitimate to some. I guess, them. yeah. I think the left also takes some cues from the right because they kind of look at Trumpism in a way and, and what Republicanism is in 2020 and and say, look at those motherfuckers. Like they have no problem just going for it, you know, going just saying like yeah. build the wall, sure. like really outlandish positions. And and they were like during COVID, they just went out and and they were like, Yeah, fuck it, a three trillion dollar package. That's what we need. Like they like, yeah, there there was eventual like um a little bit of, of a resistance against it. But like I still remember um uh what's his name? The Treasury Secretary um Manukin. Manukin, however you pronounce his name, like coming out and say, like, yeah, we need a big number. We need a two to three trillion dollar package, and and they just go for it. And and I think that's what kind of the the the, uh, the frustration coming from the left, where where with Democrats, it always feels like they're negotiating mm -hmm. with themselves, yeah. and they always negotiate. Down. They're playing the political game instead of just being forthright with what they want. And I think you're right, like. That's why we even like when you look back to 08 and the Tea Party, it's the same thing, right? Like all of these movements that are very clear in their in their demands, uh, that's appealing, you know. Um, and I think that that's what drives those movements versus, you know, people more towards the middle or establishment, you know, people who are there to play the politics. Yeah, but I mean, as far as clear intentions go, I don't remember. I don't. I mean, I don't follow politics as hard as Gus and Daniel do. But Biden really, to me, didn't feel like he did anything outlandish, and he didn't do anything specific, at least. And he was still able to beat Trump. Well, I think Joe Biden and moderate Democrats and the establishment made a calculation that what people truly want is normal right like normalcy like they they just want to go back to to the obama era uh they they want to just uh um not have a a, a scandal ridden administration where every single day you just have this crazy thing that comes out um whereas the the bernie camp and leftists want to say that for a lot of people and i, I do believe this is true that for a lot of people like the 2016 america wasn't wasn't good enough um and, for, and a lot of people were still left out uh, but this this democratic primary was was kind of like a, these two beliefs kind of clashing into each other, and ultimately, I, it seems like people did prefer just going back to to the old normal rather than um, you know pushing pushing the Democratic Party towards a more progressive future. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm thinking, thinking about in, whether in 2020 like, compared to 2016. Yeah, okay. like yeah, I, I think I what what we see here is that they they prefer somebody Obama esque, right? Like they they don't want to post Obama Democratic Party. They want to go back to to the Obama Democratic Party, which is a progressive party. Like the, you know, Obama did believe in a lot of progressive things, but it's not the the you know a free college, mm. forgive student loans, defund the police um, type of thing. I think the defund the police is probably the 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 what's going to be like the the defining issue on on what separates moderates and and leftists because yeah there's a lot of moderates that are off put by that and i think that's something that the left has to kind of realize there's there's just a lot of people that when they hear defunding the police um they clutch their it, pearls it makes them nervous yeah yeah but is it that they don't so understand do what it means or is it that 
they just well then it's a bad slogan you think it's a bad slogan if it turns it if it turns them off to the idea before they even understand it, then yes, it's a bad slogan. Think about that. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. If I came up with the slogan that turned you off to the idea before I was able to articulate it to you, then you would say it's a bad slogan. Yeah, yeah I guess that's true. But what about hope and change? That's a good one. Yeah, but that's a good <laughs> God one. God damn it. I like build back oh. better. God. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? <laughs> like, I'm so it means literally, out. I don't even know. <laughs> Build the wall better. <laughs> Build everything back better. We are Democrats. We'll do the same things Republicans but want. better. better. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So putting aside whether this thing was rigged, but at the same time, I mean, there were articles coming out all through the process about establishment figures meeting up, trying to figure out how to beat Bernie. They were putting their support behind Buttigieg at first. They were, they were, you know, like, he's the guy. He's the... And, you know, Buttigieg pulled horribly around anybody his own age and pulled wonder everybody over 60. Um, you know, there were there were there's there's other ongoing institutional things. Uh, Nack, I think you and I the other day were talking about how we don't it, it I don't think and, and, you know, Gus, you watch a little more CNN than we do normally. But I don't think the sort of corporate media generally get I would not say gives Bernie Sanders ideas a fair hearing in in the way that they would uh, a more centrist candidate. And I don't think that's like a necessarily like, oh, there's some sort of back dealing between the DNC and CNN and MSNBC or something. This is just the institutional press does not give a fair. This isn't shocking. The institutional centrist press does not give a fair hearing to leftist views. And in fact, kind of sort of, you know, wants to sort of put define what the debates are, uh, the, the the measure of the debates and wants to limit them. Um, and will will push out sort of the the extreme left view uh, from that. And I think that's that's uh, not inaccurate. And, you know, one one example of that is just that, you know, the number of extreme right commentators on CNN and MSNBC has shot up over the years. I mean, you have like Rick Santorum, like, uh, you know, just like some some gross people. But I don't think you see that on the left. You don't see these like very extreme leftists uh, uh, go, go, you know, become commentators for, for CNN and MSNBC. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I, and again, this isn't like rigging per se, but this is, I mean, it's the same argument that, oh yeah, they helped Trump in 2016 because they sort of just let his garbage flow forth and, and showed his press conferences live without backchecking him or anything. I mean, I think these, there is an argument to be made that, that because of the way the press works in this country, that left ideas are not going to get a fair hearing. On the other hand, guess, I think, you know, if you were to argue, eh, Everybody who knew who Bernie Sanders was, like you can't pretend that people didn't know who Bernie Sanders was. That he's been around for four years. He's one of the most well-known politicians in the country. Like the idea that the voters don't have a sense of who Bernie Sanders was is kind of ridiculous. The unfortunate thing about that is that when the media on the right and when even the GOP themselves want to scare people or at least people in their base, all they have to do is say Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Like Bernie Sanders has become a, a boogeyman for that, you know, for, for people on the right. And so when the, uh, when 
places like CNN give him so little attention, it gives him less of an opportunity to be like, well, here's what we're actually um, fighting for. You know what I mean? To, to portray himself accurately. Yeah, but the okay, so I agree with that. But anytime, so sometimes I watch clips of Fox News. They don't. They're not. In fact, they frequently describe the left more accurately in a lot of ways than CNN and MSNBC do. Um, when they describe their policies, they're doing it in a way that's like, "Oh, this is bad." They're giving free healthcare to everybody, free yeah. education, housing, terrible shit. Uh, but it's it's more it's a little more like uh, it, it, I, I don't know. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, do the fo- I don't think those viewers are going to be bought over. Like you could put the most articulate defender of the left on Fox, and I don't think he's they're going to persuade anybody. Um, but yes, it's true. He is a boogeyman. But still, yeah. But still, like, and then you have Trump who anytime he even says Bernie Sanders, it's preceded by crazy, right? Like he, like Mm -hmm. nowhere else is Bernie Sanders kind of given a, an accurate or even like positive, uh, spin, Mm -hmm. uh, outside of like what I would call left leaning, uh, outlets yeah mm-hmm. but i yeah. i would say like bernie sanders almost kind of leaned on that a little bit like he kind of built a campaign and and had campaign advisors that were very much like yeah we are who we are like we are like he did never he never shied away from being like a democratic socialist which right. it is who he is i mean he's true to himself but it just having that socialist in in the, in the name is something that uh, inherently is going to scare a lot of people away uh but he's saying that there's a future where that's not going to be a boogeyman um i think maybe he thought he, he could be the standard bearer for a while but uh I think his his ultimate, probably even now, his his long term bet is that America is eventually going to get to a future where more uh, democratic socialists are going to be accepted uh, and are going to become bigger members of the Democratic Party. Whether that's true or not, I don't really know, but I I think that's still his belief, and I still think that's AOC's belief or the squat's belief. Like going forward, I don't. As far as the future of the of the left, I, I don't I don't know how prominent or how how much progress they're going to make in these next four years, but I don't see it just them going away. Like AOC is already calling for for new le- leadership, and I think there are times where Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer really make the case that the, the Democratic Party does need new le- leadership. And while they keep doing that, I think the left is is going to stay stay around, and it's going to be a they're going to be prominent voices. But I. I don't know if they're ever gonna gonna be the leaders of the party, to be honest. I let me ask you guys this because the the Democratic primary is a little weird because Super Tuesday happened like I think it was like March fifth or something like that, and literally like a week later the pandemic like took hold of the United States, and we're gonna talk about that in our next story. But it was almost like a week. Like I remember like Super Tuesday being the last non-COVID thing that we all obsessed about before COVID took over our lives. 
Do you guys think that if, had, if it had happened maybe a month earlier, would it have made a single difference or would we be looking at the same outcome? I think, I don't think it, I think it wouldn't be the same outcome. I kind of think so too. Even though it kind of makes a case for Bernie Sanders a little bit better because it's like, hey, like maybe we shouldn't re- uh, pair healthcare and employment together because maybe there's a huge pandemic that's going to cause an economic collapse and people are going to lose their jobs and lose their healthcare at the same time while there's this virus spreading everywhere, putting people in hospitals. Like, I think it was John Oliver, I think, that made the statement that still still like really affects me today where he he said that nothing makes a better case for a welfare state than seeing a government trying to build one when it's already too late. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. yeah, that and it does feel like so we were talking about the the sort of left ideas and the right ideas. I think the democrat I think the his, the future of the democratic party, I don't know for sure. I think there's going to be a lot of infighting, internecine conflict that we already see. And there's going to be more of that. There's going to be more accusations of corruption and rigging from the left to the right. Um, but I do think that what we will see is a party that will still continue to call itself moderate while it, while it slowly tacks to the left uh, and still continues to call itself moderate. And I think that's, that is, you'll get that I think from maybe from Republicans also, because like, for example, uh, this year, I mean, just a lot of stuff has happened that has <laughs> made leftism sort of the, I mean, like for the first time ever, the government in a bipartisan way sent checks to every single American, <laughs> which was un- unprecedented event uh, prior to this. And, and it's, and clearly that we get that's, checks under Obama. Did we No. Did we? No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. What are you? What are you referring to? Like, okay. is there a specific yeah, incident that that happened? Why I had that if, in my head? I'll, if yeah. so, Obama, you owe me a check. Where's my <laughs> Obama bucks? My Barack yeah, bucks. Same, same for me. Yeah. Well, well, come collecting, Obama, because you obviously listen to this podcast. My, my point is, it's it's almost like I don't. Maybe I don't want to put it this way, but I'm going to go ahead and say it, and maybe I'll take it back later. But it's almost like the the increasing and exponentially increasing crises are forcing us to go left even if we don't want to <laughs> so that even if even if you know we want to be the moderate joes of the world we're still going to end up sending checks and and you know giving emergency healthcare to people because it turns out that these crises we're unable to solve them or address them in any meaningful way without some sort of collective action uh, maybe Again, maybe that's that's too much. Maybe I'm overreading the situation. I just do think it's crazy that that for, we literally just sent cash to people this year, and nobody has ever done that. And Republicans are openly advocating sending cash, just cash transfers to people. Again, just a just a weird year, I think. Well, that actually takes us uh, to our next story. So let's let's just jump forward because I'm talking about the beginning of the. COVID-19 pandemic, at least here in the United States, um, and then the shutdown of 2020. And I am, we're going to talk about COVID twice here, and I am, it is, I know that's weird, but I do think there is a very uh, significant difference in how we started handling the pandemic when it first started, and how we ended things. And I, I, I think that it's it's weird now going back to the beginning of the pandemic and, and thinking about how it grabbed um, took a hold of us and 
the as you mentioned daniel like the the measures that even this government took to to go ahead and and try to resolve this crisis um i actually want to ask you guys like how did you guys feel like during that one week where maybe like if you were working in an office or or wherever you work you you were sent home um and and theaters were shutting down restaurants were shutting down the economy itself was shutting down like i still remember i think the the defining week for me or actually the defining day and it's kind of silly thinking about it but it was the one day where it was confirmed that tom hanks got the virus and Mm. the nba shut down their entire season for whatever reason that day and it, it all happened in one day i was like oh fuck like this is this is for real like it's gonna hit us like it hit china like this is it like it's gonna hit us like it hit italy fuck so how did you guys feel like like daniel i'll start with you like that that kind of moment where you knew that this was here and it wasn't gonna go away um i'm actually not sure if i can sort of crystallize one moment when it hit and i thought it wasn't gonna go away i i did think it was gonna be sort of a shorter thing than it than it uh appeared to be i feel like the the initial surges in the european countries were i mean they were big i'm not saying that they were big they weren't big in in at that time but they were small relative to what they became um so for example italy was the big one at that time and everyone was watching italy with fear and worrying that they would turn into italy um and they were hoping that they would be more like the other countries that had it better under control um but I think, I think it. I I I can't. The day is unclear to me. But I think about a month into staying home, I real I I I was like, this is gonna be <laughs> this is gonna be like forever or or a very long time. This might not. We might never come out of this in the way that I want to. In the way that I want to, like I want like a clear ending. I want like, oh, this is the day that it ended and we were back to normal. I don't think we're ever going to get that, unfortunately. And I think, yeah, it was about a month into staying home when I realized, yep, this is not just a temporary health thing. This is serious. You know, this is going to be a lot more than it seems like it. I think a lot of people came out feeling the same way, except... Well, a month into it, they were like, okay, the serious part is over. Now we can just go back to normal. <laughs> and then they did, uh, which is the reason we're rounding out 300,000 deaths right now. But Rounding that corner. Did, yeah, because you, you mentioned a good point there. Like, I thought this was going to last maybe six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Maybe three to six months was the most extreme. I did not think we were going to be close to New Year, close to Christmas. And still, I'm not going to be able to see my family, and I'm not going to be able to see my friends during the new year. Um, we're not going to be able to get together because this thing is still uh, out of control. Uh, Sam, like, did you think it was going to last a long time, or or did you think it was going to be a very temporary thing? Do you think? Did you think we were going to be here now? I I had no idea that we were going to be here now. Um, I hoped that it was going to be a short term thing. I I looked at China and I was like, okay, this is when it first started happening. I was like, okay, well, I guess it's gonna come here. And um, I was thinking back on it now. It was it was not the best um, belief that I had, but I was like, okay, well, our government can handle it. I mean, we 
we we prepared for this and stuff like that but obviously that never happened and um yeah i mean i i i i've never been sent home because the places that i work um have have stayed open like i worked at a car dealership i've well i've i've worked at home as a as a help desk person but that this doesn't go away but i work at a hospital now and I mean, I've never been sent home, so I don't. I don't think it affected me as as others have, because I've basically just lived with it. I guess. I guess we all live with it, but you know. Nack, were you sent home from your job? If you don't mind sharing. So yeah, well, it was kind of weird because that was our spring break week. So we got an email from uh, the principal of the school saying that there was a possibility that we don't come back from spring break and that we keep the kids home and transition to online learning. And uh, so we had to, we had to tell the kids like, you know, we're not sure when you guys are coming back. So you need to take all of your books home, all of your materials, because for at least one week, they, at the time it was just going to be one week. They said, uh, we're going to be, you know, distance learning. And the week went by. The week <laughs> turned into the rest of the school year. Um, so it was weird because and then the other thing about that was I was back then I was teaching fifth grade. So that was the last like those those kids never got to say goodbye to their other fifth grade teachers. I actually got the opportunity to move back, move up with them to sixth grade to the middle school. Um, but those kids never saw the fifth grade teachers again because they were sent home and never came back to school. So that was crazy. But uh, yeah, it was a surreal kind of at the time I was excited. I was like two weeks off. Hell yeah, let's do it. And uh, I guess you got to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, here it's, we still are. I mean, it's worth noting that if we had done I I know we've kind of hammered on this in the show, but if we had done this correctly, we could have been through it in the way that we're sort of imagining where it was a short thing. I mean, there are Taiwan, you know, parts of China, Taiwan, mm -hmm. New Zealand, a lot of the Asian countries, Viet Vietnam, they're all Korea. I think largely they haven't recorded any community okay. transition in, you know, hundreds of days. They're, they're still taking precautions, but they've largely opened up again in a lot of ways. And, we could have been there, but we decided to just say, fuck it. <laughs> we'll just herd immunity our way through that. We'll just uh, lift up our bootstraps and just, you know, die. There was a moment and maybe this was silly of me to, to have ever thought this, but there was a moment at the very beginning when I thought, look, Donald Trump is a very stupid person and he's incompetent. But he is not a principled conservative, right? Like he—he's not—he doesn't really believe in conservatism. He like he doesn't give a shit. And maybe he would see this as a moment where he can just be as bold as he wanted to be, and just you know say, "Fuck it!" Like pu push several stimulus packages. Like he's for you know people receiving checks in the mail. Even right now, he's still calling for that. Uh, so I really thought he was just gonna. Push. He's the president of the United States. 
He doesn't give a shit about the deficit, and he just wants to win re-election. So I thought he was just going to push the Republican Party to just, and he knew that Democrats, or at least he should know that Democrats were going to go along with it because they're they're in favor of it, and just push several packages and just shut things down. And he gets to he gets to put his name, sign his name all big on the. And checks. he would be the hero of a, the day, a, like, and he would like yeah. we talk about, you know, and we're probably going to discuss this later on when we talk about the election. But like, who would have won if there was no COVID? But I think even more certain, I'm more certain that Trump would have won if he had handled COVID even like. 30% better than what he did. And I think he would have won by by yeah. fairly large margins, maybe even win the popular vote. Uh, like, and he, and we're going to talk about toward the end of COVID, but he fucked it up. And I should have seen that coming. I should have seen that. Of course, this asshole was going to kill us all. But there was a moment where I thought he was going to push this through. We don't talk about it anymore because he's the, I don't know, crazy anti-science guy, but he's the fucking deals guy. Where are the deals, brother? Bring us the deals. <laughs> make a deal. Bring your party and the Democrats together and make the deal. Isn't that your thing? Why don't you bring <laughs> do do something? He didn't do anything. He just let Mitch McConnell lead him around, and that's it. Uh, the 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 stuff about Donald let him sort of take over the Republican Party is that he was supposed to be different than than other Republicans. He was supposed to be able to to you know. Uh, what, what was some of the stuff he did during the primaries? Raise taxes on rich people, make sure everybody's covered by health care, anti-war, all that stuff. All of it went away when he became president, and he just sort of followed the Republican Party line. So, Yeah, to his detriment, I, I, I think. Like, I think he lost because he listened to Mitch McConnell a little too much. And Mitch McConnell's going to stay, and he's gone. So Yeah. I, I think we all kind of i think based based on everyone what they're what you guys are saying and based on pretty much all of america i think we all realized that or we all hope that this wasn't going to be as long as it as it has been it shouldn't have to it, it we shouldn't be it shouldn't right have now. been yeah this. it shouldn't yeah, have been um, exactly it's sad but let's yeah. let's leave it there we're going to revisit COVID a little bit later uh, but let's talk about real quick before we before we segue. I did find in 2008 we got stimulus checks uh, as part of the recovery effort from the was that George Bush or was that Barack Obama? Yep. It was under Bush. Bush, where wow. where are anyway. my Bush bucks? Bush, I never got them. <laughs> Anyways, anyway, no, sorry. that's okay. Good to Good know. know. Um, so let's talk about. Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd protests that occurred over the summer. Um, obviously, you know, George Floyd's death, uh, as well as the death of Breonna Taylor and other uh, black victims at the hands of police brutality. Um, George Floyd died, uh, I believe it was May 25th in Minneapolis. Uh, he, uh, I believe he, he, like the white cop put a knee on his neck and he couldn't breathe, and he passed away because of that, which spurred protests in the Minneapolis and St. Paul area, uh, I believe a day later and, and throughout the week, and then there were protests soon after happening across America. And it was it was quite the outcry, right? Like, it, it was, it's, it's, it's as if decades and decades of frustration um, just 
came into the light and and we we just it just took over for you know and and it it for for a while it, it even overtook covid as as the main story and it was the thing being debated on during the uh and uh, and you know and and several networks uh it was it was the main thing in the campaign trail we were wondering if like kenosha or or other things was going to affect affect the election it was you know in in this in this era during this pandemic it it was very sudden and very i shouldn't be shocking but it was it was just surprising how much this took hold of america and i'm wondering and if if this is something that will still have ramifications under under the biden era now that trump is out or if if we're just going to see it kind of fizzle away, what do you guys think is the Black Lives Matter movement going forward? Uh, and and what did you feel back then too? Like what? Because it's hard for me to put into words because I'm not, you know, I I am a minority, but I haven't felt marginalized in the way that I know a lot of a lot of these uh, individuals and a lot of these movements felt. And and just to see it manifest like that was was something that I wasn't really anticipating although i was once it did happen i was kind of like yeah it's it's about time but what do you guys think i know i said a lot there it's kind of just a (laughs) a stream of conscience but what did those movements mean to you honestly what what was most remarkable to me was just the severity of the government crackdown against it not only from the federal government but from uh police forces and supposedly very liberal cities cracking down on it um in a very harsh way uh, i think the thing that sticks out most to me is the shocking videos we saw of of uh just crowds of people sort of being tear gassed at random <laughs> to sort of calm them quote calm them down you know uh or or police just just beating people senseless for not following their instructions uh you know the the famous uh, that old guy who got pushed over in Buffalo and, and who's still severely brain damaged from that. You know those cops who pushed him over got their jobs back recently. By the way, um, I think the the shocking amount of crackdown and the shocking uh, apologia, the defense of that crackdown, not only from uh, moderates, not only from Republicans, but also from supposed moderates. Um, I mean, like, let's not let's not uh, sugarcoat this. I mean, Joe Biden's assessment of this situation is, well, we should shoot the shoot looters in their legs. Right. Is that is that what he said? Like the the Black Lives Matter protests, or at least the reaction to them, taught me that I don't think this country is ready for a real reckoning on civil rights. Not in the not in the way that there has to be. Um, I, I mean, it's it's. I mean, even even the phrase "Black Lives Matter" is like offensive to people now. <laughs> like you can't, like uh, you can't say "Black Lives Matter" without it being associated with a supposedly terrorist group that's affiliated with the PLO and and is also a, a socialist organization that's hoping to spread socialism and communism through the United States. That's that's the political. Just saying "Black Lives Matter" has all of that political baggage with it. Uh, not because it really does, but because it's it's been so maligned and the re- reaction to it has been so severe and so swift. Um, oh, yeah. Hey, I forgot about the murder <laughs> that the president ordered against the 
that suspect in the in the Seattle killing, right? Uh, we talked about that on this episode. It's just been it's it's been remarkable, and uh, you know, and, and to top it off, you know, uh, the the other day I saw a story about how the top intelligence official at the DH. DHS was whistleblowing again because he said that he was DHS is the Department of Homeland Security. He was being pushed by the White House to uh, no shit to overstate illegal border crossings from Mexico and overplay the role of far left groups in violence during anti-government protests last summer. Uh, He was also told to hold back on circulating assessments of the threat of Russian interference and to downplay U.S. white supremacist activity. <laughs> it's really the, well, I was about to say trifecta, but that's four separate things uh, that that was completely politicized, uh, you know, to make it look like leftists were taking over the country. And and to be honest, I think they largely succeeded at that. Uh, you know, we talk about the, the results of the election being uh, kind of unexpected because Democrats got washed and then saying, well, you know, part of that was Black Lives Matter, but it's like, well, part of that was the bastardization of Black Lives Matter and the the politiza- politicization to make it seem like the leftists were, you know, going to come for your vacation house and steal it and give it to refugees or something. Um, that, you know, I, I don't know what that means for the Black Lives Matter movement going on, going forth. Oh, but it doesn't, it doesn't, strike me as very positive for any leftist movement in this country when that, you know, even a mildly leftist movement was met by like accusations of terrorism, literal kill squads <laughs> from the president. Like, I, I don't really, yeah, I guess I'm just sort of talking ad nauseum, but I, yeah, it doesn't make me feel good about the sort of uh, left. And, you know, I guess maybe moderates are like, well, good. That's, that's great. Extremism is bad on the left or the right. So, it's good that we shoot rubber bullets into people's faces. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well, it makes me a little sad, right? Because I think if what these protests, I think more than anything, because people are going to probably mention the riots and, and some of the violence that occurred during that time. But I think if these protests really showed something very, very clearly to all of America, it's that we need uh, severe police reform in this country. Like the, uh, our police forces across the nation and many, many, many cities, some big, some smaller, is like highly militarized, highly trained to escalate, highly trained to use brutality to quell any kind of uh, protest or, or, or any kind of unrest. And it's, they're, they're, they're a danger. Like they're a danger to a lot of peaceful civilians. And then we need, we need to just state it. Like it shouldn't have to be that way. I don't want to be anti-cop. I would like to trust a cop. I would like to say if there was an intruder, if I see, a, a you know, somebody intruding into my neighbor's house, I would be comfortable calling the cops to have this resolved and hope that somebody doesn't die at the end of it. You know, like, and, and right now that's not the case. Uh, and it seems now, like I haven't heard a lot of discussion about police reform anymore like since joe biden won the election i don't see that as a prominent kind of discussion of of any kind so that saddens me well i think it might be the democrats fear that it it would help lose lose them an election in georgia like so for example that call that we discussed last week with the joe biden and the civil rights leaders that leaked where you know the he pushed back hard on on seeking any kind of reforms ahead of the georgia election and um 
I'm going to say something controversial. I don't necessarily think he's wrong about that. When you look at what's at stake in Georgia, I I can't help but agree with you, you know, like. I mean, it's possible but, that, I mean, the other side of that is, is it hurting Democrats not to talk about these issues? There are a lot of African-American voters in Georgia. Again, I'm, well, not again, but I guess to be clear, I'm not entirely sure about this. This is obviously my what i with very little evidence i'm just going to kind of throw out here but my assumption is that they're going to vote democrat regardless of whether democrats are bringing up uh these civil rights issues uh especially when it comes to policing in america that's who the democrats are afraid of losing by talking about civil rights uh, I don't think that they're afraid of losing black people by not talking civil rights. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense to me. But I mean, from that, yeah. So then I guess you agree with Joe Biden then. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> no, you do. You do. I, I, like, I'm not saying that way. I'm saying uh, you do. Yeah. On this, on this, on this one thing. Yeah. So on that call where he was yelling at civil rights leaders, you agree. <laughs> I'm just kidding. God damn it. So, like, the thing about defunding the police and, and the protests is that sometimes when we try to just politicize it, we're kind of undermining what these movements are, right? Like, when people say they want to defund the police, it's, it's and, I, and I actually agree with this. Like, when Ilan Omar would say, like, it's not a slogan, it's a policy. Like, we, we say defund the, the, the police not because it's catchy, it's because we want to defund the police. It's like, when I say I want to abolish ICE, I don't think it's a fun saying. I want to abolish ICE. I think it, that department needs to go. Like, it, it cannot be reformed. Uh, it cannot be, uh, um, you know, we cannot retrain these agents from the ground up. It needs to go. And the, the same with, with police reform. Like, it's more than just training. I don't want to retrain these cops. I want to defund the police. Uh, and that's because people are dying. And, and, and people are being marginalized and communities are scared of the people that they're supposed to rely on for protection. So it's not always going to win the votes. And we kind of talked about this, Daniel, like when the protests happen, it's like maybe they these are happening not, not as a political way to get Democrats elected. They don't trust the Democrats either because a lot of these states and a lot of these cities are Democratic-led and yet the same thing happens over mm -hmm. and over. And uh, at some point, these communities are not going to just be like, well, we can't do this because maybe maybe John Ossoff isn't going to win Georgia. Like, they don't give <laughs> yeah. a shit, yeah. you know? Like, they, they, they just want to not die. They want to feel safe. Well, I was going to say, that's why I thought it was always funny how the, how the Fox was like, all these Joe Biden voters out in the street. And I'm like, OK, yeah, I'm sure all of these people out in the street protesting are real hardcore Joe Biden people. <laughs> yeah, I, it's like I don't think the rioters or I don't think, some, the, uh, you know, even the community activists, they're not they're not, you know, campaign strategists. You know, they're yeah. they're people that want reform and they want change. And um, yeah, I don't advocate violence, of course, but I do understand the frustration that leads to these kinds of outcries because these moderate Democrats are not going to make things better and they've proven to it. And then, you know, I'm, I'm happy that Joe Biden won the election, but almost from the get go, it's pretty obvious he's not going to get this done. And who can blame uh, people when when they 
they can't trust either party and they just don't care who wins the election. They just want to make sure that their voices are heard somehow. That's all I got to say on that subject. It's weird that I, even after that call where he yelled at the head of the NAACP, like he was, <laughs> uh, like he didn't know anything about discrimination. Uh, I still have a little bit of faith in Joe Biden to maybe reform police. I don't know why. Maybe my brain is just totally poisoned. <laughs> for whatever reason, I still have faith in him that it, that I think he can take some steps. Maybe I just think he's bully- being pragmatic at this moment. Because he's right. We did get washed in the Well, election. we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it... it it depends like uh, this is good, probably going to happen or no not probably this is going to happen again like these kinds of tra- tragedies are going to happen again and they're going to happen under under joe biden's presidency and i'm hoping when it does these kinds of movements are still as strong as they are right now uh hopefully we won't be under a uncontrolled pandemic but maybe we will be because again the vaccine isn't going to solve things the next day it's going to take a while uh but i'm hoping you know, I, I would hope these things don't happen, but unless something changes, I have no reason to believe that they won't. I think I think we will see a tragedy under the Joe Biden presidency. And I'm hoping you're right, Daniel. I'm hoping he he surprises me and Congress surprises me and something gets done. I think it all depends on who wins um, Georgia. Yeah, it does. I mean, it makes a huge difference. Like those two um, Senate races have have a huge impact. I don't know. I'm not too optimistic about Georgia, but that's a topic for, for another time. The thing, one thing I want to add to the, to the civil rights, uh, especially with, with regards to policing, um, is that the, and, and really this, well, I guess it is a civil rights issue. If you look at the populations who are, are affected by this, but police are, uh, evicting people, uh, during a pandemic right now, you know, like if you want to, if you, if you want to, um, for whatever reason, ignore the police physical violence, because I would still say that evicting somebody in the midst of a pandemic is an act of violence. But if you want to overlook the physical violence that, that is happening at the hands of police, all you got to do is look at what their function is in society, right? Like, what is it that police are doing mm. for our country right now? Who are they serving? Um, and so I, I won't, I don't want to go f- too far down that rabbit hole, but I think it's an important thing to look at because obviously we're, when, we, when we bring up topics like defund the police, a lot of that comes from or is is kind of centered around civil rights and uh you know basically how black people are murdered in this country by police who are who act with impunity and so much more to what i think is wrong with with the the function that police have well in our country but anyway just thought i'd toss that in there because it's yeah, a well it's said. a whole ball of wax anyways let's let's go ahead and go on to our next and you know we talked about some pretty major things uh, we're, we're talking about a pandemic 
uh, a Democratic primary that probably defined the Democratic Party for at least four to eight years going forward. Um, these civil rights protests. It's It's been, you know, 2020 has been a shit show, but we can't say it has not been a consequential year. It's, it's a lot of major things happened during this year. But this next topic probably is the most consequential for maybe decades going forward. And I'm, of course, talking about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the uh, subsequent nomination of Amy Coney Barrett as her replacement in the Supreme Court. I, one, one of my, I don't want to say favorite episodes, I don't think favorite is the word, but the, the, the one I remember the most is the episode that we did when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Uh, because we, we had, you know, this whole episode planned. We had two or three topics. And then literally about half an hour before we were going to record, we got the news that she died. And it was pretty obvious then. It's like, well, that's the episode. There's absolutely nothing else that we can talk about. And it was about, it was a short 40 to 50 minute discussion where us, uh, Daniel and Sam, we were just devastated, right? Like we were just uh, blown away by the, this news and blown away in a bad way. And we kind of understood that the Supreme Court, at least probably for the remainder of our lifetime, is going to be highly conservative. Yeah. It still kind of hits me. <laughs> yeah, you're you're our legal oh. expert here. So, what? Tell us, like, what? Even now, months from now, like, how does this still? How does this still hit you? Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is just as awful as it was when it happened. To be perfectly honest, because uh, RBG's still gone, and the court is still six to three, very conservative. Um. So I kind of went through and, and made a little compilation of the decisions so far. There haven't been that many decisions because it's still early on. Um, but uh, we have Roman Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo, which was the New York decision where the Supreme Court held that uh, <clears throat> basically New York's COVID outbreak limitations on churches violated the First Amendment to the Constitution. Um, which is it was just an alarming decision. It was basically, I mean, it was it was sort of out of left field because uh, under the old rules, the way it typically worked is uh, religious objectors to a law that sort of did not exempt them uh, as long as it basically treated them equally to secular institutions. They couldn't like seek special advantages under the First Amendment, which makes sense. If the point of the First Amendment is not to either favor religion or to harm religion, you would want there to be an equality principle. You wouldn't want either secular institutions or religious institutions to have uh, preference. Uh, but the Supreme Court basically flipped hundreds of years of law on its head with ACB uh, and basically said New York's restrictions were... <clears throat> were uh, inappropriate um they did it in a very weird way where they didn't compare church to other similar things like uh concerts lectures theatrical performances which were closed down entirely uh in new york 
under these rules. Uh, they compared it to non-public uh, gathering style. Uh, so, so, so let me just put this in, in words, uh, terms that are a little clear. New York basically banned all public gatherings and then made an exception for religious groups and said religious groups can gather, they just have to gather in much more limited numbers. Uh, now, New York left open some places like stores and restaurants that don't involve necessarily large, you know, with restrictions that don't necessarily uh, allow large pe- large numbers of people to gather and, and you know, express themselves. That's another thing about COVID is, is singing, saying things like that will spread it faster because it tends to push the virus out of your mouth. Um, the Supreme Court said no, basically. They said you can't do this. You can't hold churches to a higher standard than like stores and stuff. Not and it, and it wasn't that you have to treat them equally to these other things because if it was then uh it would have been an easy case because the churches would have all lost because they were all getting preferences that the stores were not. Um but uh this you know the Supreme Court basically said no uh religion under this new doctrine gets a little more gets little boosts from us. <laughs> So they get a bigger exemption from public health restrictions than non-religious services. Um, it's it, again, it flips hundreds of years of law on its head. It's hard to see what the what the effects of this are going to be. I mean, it's it's sort of crazy that uh, I, I can't imagine they're going to do this a lot in the COVID context. I bet they're going to try to avoid making these decisions because they're going to get fucking people killed. <laughs> they're literally going to get people killed for some political. Fox News political point about how, you know, we need to be able to have 100 people in a church instead of 50, right? Um, So that was one case, awful, awful case. Uh, Another one was um, a capital punishment case. That was her first case. Uh, She lifted a, she joined a decision lifting a stay of execution, um, who was uh, against a man named Orlando Hall, who was uh, executed uh, in Indiana an hour later. Um, The other case is not a case she's gotten yet, but she's going to get it, um, which is the 11th Circuit conversion therapy, gay conversion therapy case, uh, which I think we talked about on this podcast, uh, where the two Trump justices of the 11th Circuit basically said, that gay conversion therapy of juveniles is protected by the First Amendment, <laughs> and you couldn't outlaw it. So, uh, <laughs> which is like a crazy decision um, because Florida had made it illegal to uh, convert a juvenile, you know, to convince him he wasn't actually gay or sh- he should not be gay. Uh, they made it illegal to do that, and uh, the Eleventh Circuit struck it down. I think I know where it's going to go. I think obviously it's probably going to find a heart in this Supreme Court. It's probably going to be a five to three to five to four decision. Um, and it's, it's remarkable. <laughs> and these are just, this is just a handful of the decisions. And, it, you know, we're a couple of months in, uh, people were like, Oh, she's staying out of a lot of the election decisions. Maybe she's more moderate than I, I think it's way too early to draw any of these conclusions. I think if anything, this shows that she's going to be much more extreme than we thought she was, because already we have the, the Roman Diocese versus Cuomo, which is a, a shocking decision to many legal commentators. And I think it's going to upend a lot of this area of law. And basically, 
make it so that uh, religion is going to be <laughs> allowed to to sort of make an excuse for a variety of generally applicable laws that are supposed to apply. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like we've talked about this in this episode um, and we've been hard on on moderate Joe. Uh, I'm sorry, I said uh, we, we've talked about this in this podcast, I should say, and, and we've been hard on on moderate Joe. But this very much is the the bookend on why elections matter. Right. Mm. Uh, because say what you will about Hillary Clinton, but if she had won in 2016, we'd be looking at a completely different reality. And we're just talking talk about this topic alone, just the Supreme Court uh, as in 2020 would be radically different than, than what, it, what it is now. And, you know, I guess we need to at least celebrate the fact that Joe Biden won this election because the next justice to go is probably going to be, uh, what's his name, Daniel? Oh, Breyer. Who's Breyer? Yes. I yeah, mean, yeah, he's, he's, the he's up one. there in age. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully yeah. he retires, or I don't want to wish him death, but hopefully no, he no, retires. No, no. Yeah. Under Biden. I, w- I mean, that's the other question is <laughs> are the Democrats going to ever get another judge? Uh, if they lose the Senate, is are the Republicans going to give him another judge? Unclear. Yeah. Unclear. Um, yeah. It is, yeah, I agree. 2016, man. Like, uh, it is one of those situations where I wish I could have a time machine and go back. And I mean, I was saying this stuff in 2016, right? Don't not vote. Don't vote third party, please. We'll lose the court for a generation. And then we lost the court for a generation. So, yeah. Yeah. Surprise. So I hate asking this question, but what is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy now? Um, you know, she passed away on a very unfortunate time. Obviously, she wanted to to lift through this and and um, retire under a Biden presidency, but that didn't happen. And now Amy Coney Barrett is her successor. Does this affect her legacy? Does it tarnish it? Does it basically reverse everything that she's accomplished in her many decades in the Supreme Court and and in law in general? It could very well affect everything. I mean, we don't know. I don't. I don't think it's gonna erase her legacy, necessarily. At least not in the way we discuss it. Because, uh, well, I guess I guess we'll still discuss her. You know, famous cases, the women's rights cases, the ones she litigated and the ones she ruled on. Uh, that will still be her legacy. Also, her her story is remarkable and. Uh, I think a lot of women and girls have somebody to look up to in her, um, despite, you know, if be like remove everything that she did as a Supreme court justice, but just her story of how she got there is, uh, something that I think a lot of women can, like I said, look up to. Will it tarnish her legacy? Probably a little bit. I don't think this is what's going to get focused on because the people who like to talk about RBG don't focus on this stuff. So, for example, in law schools, they're not really going to focus on this. They're going to focus on our cases. Uh, you know, in in uh, the sort of RBG fandom, they focus on her legacy and her history. And Yeah, I think it's going to be kind of an asterisk. I don't think it's going to upend her legacy in the way that 
even if it does, even if it does rent, you know, do a lot of damage to her actual judicial decisions. Yeah, that's where I think it like it could actual a lot of things could change because of when she didn't step down. Yeah. I don't think again, I don't think the courts are gonna say, ha, now all the RBG decisions are overturned. I think they're gonna work around them and it's gonna be much more insidious. <laughs> then again, they did that that Roman Catholic versus Cuomo kind of shocked people because they were like, Nope, public health. Not when we have religion. Yeah, it it really saddens me because normally when an icon like her passes away, of course it's always sad to lose somebody like her. But under normal circumstances, it would at least be an opportunity to celebrate her life and her work. And I think we should definitely still do that. Um, she is, as you mentioned, Nick, a remarkable figure and a hero to many um Many people, um, even people that haven't been born yet, that you know, will will live on to 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 look up to her um, and be inspired by her. But when she did pass away, it was impossible to to separate that from what is coming next and what what are the consequences of her passing away when she did. And those consequences are are going to reverberate for decades to come it's it's we haven't even seen a, a fraction of it and the fraction that we have seen as daniel mentioned is is Bad. not great yeah <laughs> and and it's it's just a sign of things to come i still you know we lost an icon we should celebrate her life we should be grateful that ruth bader ginsburg was an astonishing supreme court justice of the united states and May she rest in peace. So let's go ahead and move on. We're going to bring back COVID, guys. But yeah, bring him, build back. Yeah, bring better. that shit back. <laughs> so I'm coupling this. Uh, I am talking about the day where we found out that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, was infected with COVID 19. And I'm coupling it with essentially where we are now in the pandemic and the utter failure of the Trump administration and really the utter failure of this country to deal with the pandemic. We lost, clearly lost this war on, on this virus. And even this day, you know, thousands and thousands of people are dying, 3,000 deaths a day, daily 9-11s, December 20th, 2020. About what, eight, nine months since the pandemic started? And it's, I, I think about it this way, and I, th I mentioned it in prior episodes, I think it is a reflection on this country, on the United States, and what kind of country we are now. And I've mentioned it previously, like, I don't think with a straight face, I can maybe ever in my life say that America is the greatest country in the world, because in this one issue of our lifetime, we mismanaged it, and we fucked it up. I mean, we, we completely mishandled the situation. And here we are, right? Now, there's Congress barely helps us. The Trump administration, uh, Trump himself is done. All he talks about is, is quote-unquote, election fraud. He doesn't care about this virus anymore. Um, we got one stimulus bill. Uh, there's no unemployment or, or the, unemployed, the $600 um, uh, weekly unemployment benefit is long gone. That expired a long time ago. Um, 
and and still to this day we get record cases, record deaths, record hospitalizations. This is we could we could not have done this worse, right? This is as bad. This is worse than even my my worst fears. Like this this is chaos. I think the when you say we can never look at America as the greatest country in the world again, I think you know, it's when I used to have those thoughts, it was very much geared toward the you know, the elite, the leadership in this country who maybe didn't actually represent the interests of its people. And I would think to myself, ah, oh, that sucks. Wow. What, what a, you know, um, what a, what a shitty situation that we have here in America, despite the fact that we have, uh, so many good people, you know, and now I just think, wow. I just think about all the people who refuse to wear a mask and refuse to, socially distance um and it just i mean be like i said before when i had those thoughts of how how great america was in in comparison to other countries it was always kind of a question of like government that sort of thing and now it's just like it's the people too you know like we we we've got some pretty shitty people here in this country it's it's not even people who even people who do wear masks they're still like they're going to clubs they're going to restaurants they're they're yeah. still partying like it's like it didn't it never happened yeah i think yeah it makes it genuinely makes me sad yeah and i i mentioned previously but it's not just republicans or trumpers like there are just lots of people and understandably so i mean it's december the 20th we're we're near christmas like i understand that that desire to just want to be with your family after after this long year want to be with your friends after this long year but it's it is a reflection of our society that we couldn't even make kind of the simplest sacrifices and even people like that compare this like compare this lockdown to like oh this is the biggest civil rights issue since slavery like fuck you like fuck all those people that say like (laughs) oh yeah we're this is we're in chains like fuck you you don't know that you this was supposed to be an effort to help each other and make sure that us as a society succeed together and instead we're failing individually it's an embarrassment and other countries see it that way like they're looking at us in horror and said and saying what the hell happened to the united states and i don't know i mean it's not just donald trump it's it's a lot of things it's not and you know one one of the things is like when when i found out that donald trump got COVID. Yeah, I hate the motherfucker. Like, I really do. I really despise him. I think he's a terrible human being. On top of being incredibly incompetent, I actually think he's just evil. But even what he got it, like, I couldn't even take, uh, like, I, I didn't find any glee in it anymore. Like, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed for this country. I was embarrassed for us. I was embarrassed that we're in this situation. And I was sad. Uh, in a way, I it just made me realize that there is no such thing or ever was such a thing as American exceptionalism. And in this case, the only thing we we're exceptional about is spreading this fucking virus. I, w- I want to weigh in and, and suggest that the, the framing of, oh, we lost the fight on the virus suggests that Republicans were even trying to win the fight on the virus in the right. first place, which I, I disagree with. I think herd immunity was their plan all along. I, maybe not like their, their main plan, but they were always like, well, you know, 
we'll try our best to we'll try to stop this thing. But if not, herd immunity, herd immunity. I mean, Trump said this shit out loud multiple times. He didn't say it correctly. He said like herd community and herd something else and herd mentality because he's a moron. But he said the stuff out loud multiple times. Clearly, in the back of their mind, they were thinking. Well, look, we'll try it, but if we, we can't try too hard because that'll be too much for our economy. So we'll just have to let some people die. That that was the that was the theory. and the, this this recent story about which which confirms a large portion of this about how uh, sorry the Trump appointees repeatedly urged top health officials to adopt a herd immunity approach to COVID and allow millions of Americans to be infected. Um, I don't know if you saw any of these emails, Gus, but it, it's like. Literally, it's it's emails from people, science advisor Paul Alexander, who was second to Michael Caputo, who was appointed by the White House. There's no other way. We need to establish herd. He doesn't say herd immunity. He just says herd. And it only comes about allowing the non-high-risk groups to expose themselves to the virus, period. We need to spread the virus around to stop the spread. He actually said that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I believe there's a litany of these emails. Uh, and one of them, and I just want to, sorry, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I just want to point out. He wrote, uh, it's very accurate uh, that he wrote this in, a, in an email, uh, the draft statement about the CDC, from the CDC about how COVID was disproportionately affecting minority populations was very accurate. But he warned that in this election cycle, that this kind of statement coming from the CDC, that the media and the Democrats antagonists will use against the president. Basically, he said, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about how our policy of herd immunity is disproportionately murdering minorities because that might hurt us in the election is what he was saying. Um, anyway, sorry, I wanted to put I wanted to put a fine point on that, that they, they were very aware that this was killing minorities. Uh, in fact, that was probably part of the reason that they were like, well, let, let's just let it spread around a little bit. It's not killing the real Americans. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there's there's one sentence that really stands out and in those emails and it's we want them infected which i mean that's it right like that's that's the plan and you're right daniel like this uh maybe we shouldn't use the term loot lost the war because there's at least uh you know you you even mentioned the supreme court justices it's almost like great now we have all three branches of government working together to kill us all like that's that's Mm -hmm. the unity that we're seeing here in america um yeah this is this very much reminds me of gun violence in America, where every other country seems to have a good, you know, a good, good solution. Uh, uh, it doesn't seem to have that problem. And yet here, every time we see this violence, uh, when we see the deaths, just like we saw the deaths with, uh, uh, because of gun, gun violence, we're like, it is what it is. You know, nothing we can do. It's just, just, there's no easy solutions. And yet somehow every other country in the world, it seems to have solved it just fine but we can't do it. It's an embarrassment. And again, I, one of the things I will say, because I don't want to be all negative, is that you know there's still like the vaccine, for example, coming in record time. And then there's a lot of American scientists uh, and medical experts that worked on that. And it's, it still shows that there are bright minds here in America. Healthcare workers are heroes. And here in America, they, they've been exceptional and they should be treated like heroes. They should be treated like soldiers that when, when this is over, they should be treated like soldiers that came back from a horrific war. You know, we, it's it, what they've been enduring is 
unbelievable. And, and we should praise them uh, for the rest of their lives because they should have never uh, had this burden. And we gave them that burden. And somehow they're still living each day trying to help each other. So there are, there's, there's positive things. But the problem is we as a country, uh, from the highest level of government to even some of just individual cho choices that we made, we failed. We, if this was a test, we failed it utterly. And we're still facing the consequences. And I'm just hoping that the vaccine will at least give us better results. Probably sometime mid-2021, ah. late 2021. I don't know. But, but then we'll get the anti-vaxxers yeah. coming back. Yeah. And they'll be like... Oh, they're already here. Autism! That's another American exceptionalism. Congrats. What a country. We did it. Let's end the episode on one last story. And I think the most positive story, even if it comes with caveats. But I'm, of course, talking about the election of 2020, which meant the defeat of Donald Trump and Joe Biden being president-elect. Which, after this horrific year, at least this was somewhat of a better outcome than I expected. It wasn't all positive. Democrats did not do well in the House. Um, they still have a chance of having a 50-50 majority, but I would still consider it an outside chance. And even then, you know, they lost some key races in, um, in Maine. Uh, they lost some key races in North Carolina, in Iowa. Uh, they were, and, you know, they, they did not get the results that they wanted there. But at the very least, we don't get Trump for four more years. And oh my God, I'm so grateful for that. I, I thought about like, what would be another four years with Donald Trump? And I don't know if you guys saw the article of uh, a Brazil's president, uh, Bolsonaro saying that, oh, if like you get the, if you get vaccinated, you're, you're going to turn into like lizard people or women are going to grow beards. And I looked at that and I was like, as, as I a believe he said alligator. Okay. okay, sorry. Um, and I looked at that, and I, I like as silly as I, I that is, I was like, oh, that's Trump in like six months. Like, that's the Republican Party like six months from now. Like, as, yeah, he's pro-vaccine now, but just watch. Um, yeah, like, let me start with you, Nick. Like, we obviously did not find out the winner of the election until several days later. I, would, I believe it was the Saturday after the election. But how did you feel after you, we got the news that, Joe Biden won Pennsylvania and was going to be the next president of the United States. In a year with, I'll say, little to no good news, uh, it was, it felt fucking amazing. It felt fantastic. And I'll tell you, like, it was funny, actually, how I found out. Um, I woke up that Saturday morning <laughs> And Jackie was hovering over me. She had been waiting for me to wake up. And I wake up and, I, and her eyes are just wide open. And she just basically screams at me as I'm waking up. Biden took Georgia. Hmm. And that was when it was like, oh, my God, it's it fucking happened. We can we can. And it and I had to remind myself, this is not like this is far from over. But it was the first time <clears throat> that it felt like I could at least have, I could take a moment and uh, a sigh of relief 
and uh, yeah, it felt good. Yeah, it's kind of hypocritical of me to say this because I I just uh, I just got off a whole commentary about how disappointed I am in America, but when I when it was finally uh, announced that he was president-elect, and then I saw the celebrations on the street, like massive celebrations, like people honking their horns in New York and LA, all across America, like I was like, oh, I'm so proud to be an American. Uh, at least yeah. for that moment. Jackie and I ordered a, ordered a flag from Walmart, like an, a US flag, like it was, it truly, I, at that, in that moment, it was easy to be proud to be an American. Yeah, yeah. agreed. And let me be clear, it, it's in that moment, because it slowly fades away, but yeah. I'm still, you know, obviously I'm still ecstatic. Uh, I look forward to four years of moderate Joe. Uh, Daniel, how did you feel election day? I, I don't know if I ever felt like good. <laughs> I mean, that's just not a feeling we feel anymore. Uh, Cause you know, I think on election day, things were turning against Biden. We thought he was gonna lose. And I was still very pessimistic, even when it became pretty clear he was gonna win. I was still very pessimistic. Hey, I still think there's a chance Trump is going to pull some shit out. You know that the Pentagon stopped uh, stopped communicating with the Biden campaign the other day. Uh, that should scare the shit out of people, by the way. <laughs> but, but we're not talking about it. Uh, the 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 acting SecDef stopped uh, participating in the transition with Biden's campaign. So I don't know. Look, Biden's going to be president, but I'm not putting on my everything's great cap. <laughs> I do feel like we should clarify they it's not a permanent cease of communication. They there I guess the the story is that there was miscommunication about whether they were taking a two week break for Christmas. Uh I did hear about that. When yeah. it comes to But I heard but, anyway, but the Biden yeah, camp did not understand that to be the, the case. Right. Uh, and they also right. said that that is weird because that's not typically you don't just randomly take a two week break. From yeah. national security, but I, I just wanted to make it clear that it, it's it's implied that they will resume those discussions. Yeah, no, and and look, is Biden going to be president? I say there's thirty percent chance. I think fucking awful. I think if if we go back to the <laughs> if we come back to 2020 we'll look at it in a much more positive light than we are right now living through it yes there was a lot of terrible stuff but we developed two very hopeful vaccines for a very very for the most severe outbreak that humanity has had in 100 years uh something we did not do uh, the last time there was an outbreak like this we were unable to do it in the uh with the the flu outbreak for for multiple years there was no kind of vaccine so that's amazing uh one of the fastest viruses one of the fastest uh vaccines ever developed and uh you know i think we should be happy about that and also i mean come on we beat donald trump <laughs> we beat him with democracy <laughs> all the all the things you know impeachment uh muller all of that stuff didn't work what ultimately beat him was the voters. And I think that's something, looking back on 2020, the year that America beat Donald Trump is, is going to be something that's that's pretty, that's looked at pretty uh, optimistically, especially because, yeah, we beat him very badly. I mean, he's losing by, what, 8 million votes now? Like, we beat the crap out of him. Um, even in the Even in the swing states, and I know that they're throwing up all kinds of 
whatever about the swing states, it, there were sizable victories in those swing states um, for Joe Biden. So again, I, I'm not saying, oh yeah, 2020 was the best year ever. I'm just saying in the context of the adjacent years, and yes, COVID was terrible, but I think that we will look back at 2020 more fondly. I know that's not answering your question, which was how, how did I react to the election? But I kind of wanted to sum, because my reaction to the election is negative in the immediate sense, or negative, not very positive in the immediate sense. But in the grand scheme of things, I think we're going to be very positive on it, is basically what I'm getting at. Well, I mean, the way I feel is like, let's go back to the first story that we talked about, you know, the, the Democratic primary and how it began, like in January. And we had this very splintered Democratic Party, and we it's very divided. It was pretty hostile for a while. And we did, like, Joe Biden himself looked lost. Like, he, he was a, he looked like a completely weak candidate. Um, if, if, you probably asked a lot of people uh, back then. And obviously, there wasn't even back then there was no COVID or anything like that. But it's like, yeah, we should favor the incumbent, you know, because he, at least he has the party around him. He's the incumbent president. We all thought he was going to be like the the donor king and and have a, a, a well, he did. He did have a billion dollar campaign, but it was just completely wasted. Uh, it was terribly mismanaged. But we thought that was going to be an advantage for him. Uh, all things being equal, at that time, it looked like Donald Trump was still heading to re-election, even with his uh, pretty poor approval ratings. And he did it. He lost. And he lost. Not only did he lose the three key states, which were always the, 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 the goal here, right? It was always Wisconsin. It was always uh, Michigan. And it was always Pennsylvania. And hold the other states. But he also won Georgia and Arizona, which, again... I I know the polls there were close, but that's the first time a Democratic nominee has won those states since, I believe, Bill Clinton. So pretty un pretty uh, impressive stuff. So I think, yes, there's positives about this. I think sometimes we, we maybe the polls is, is what made us feel kind of negative because we, they were so off, right? And, and Joe Biden ended up winning by small, much smaller margins in, in, uh, in those three uh, states that I mentioned. And obviously the Democrats did not win the Senate. So there was a long period where we were just kind of happy, but still disappointed with, with the results. But I think at the end of the day, like just going back to the beginning of the year, just about this election, not everything else, but this specific election for a lot of us, it probably would have been one of the better case scenarios. And we should celebrate that at least. I didn't believe it at first. I was like, nah, nah. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. It, wait, is this really happening? Like, I was, I was like, almost like that, where it was like, holy shit. Holy shit. And then I like burst into a like, you know, a stammer and couldn't stop, you know, yelling and. It was ecstatic. The other, yeah, the but. other, the other moment for me too was during his his acceptance speech. Uh, that was pretty, or I guess his uh, not acceptance speech, but victory speech was uh, just like that whole scene. Just filled me with so much hope and maybe false hope, but <laughs> well, see. I but uh, yeah, regardless of that. like whether yeah. Joe Biden is going to disappoint us or not, and I think he is in some areas, like 
just think about what four more years of Donald Trump would have meant for this country. Like, yeah. it, for oh, sure, it would have God. been the death of a democracy. For sure, it would have been like a, a what, a 7-2 Supreme Court uh, majority and in favor of conservatism. Yeah. Uh, like, it, it would have been devastating. Like, we dodged a hell of a bullet. And, yeah, like... You're right, Daniel. Like so, some of those things, like that in the vaccine, at the very least, we end 2020 in a very hopeful note. It's been a tough year. I wish Joe Biden would win without having 300,000 Americans die because of this virus. Like that, it would have been great not 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 having that kind of devastation. Unfortunately, we did. Unfortunately, we had to face this this horrible pandemic, and we, we completely mismanaged it. But look, there's hope. You know. And that's that's what matters in the end, because we all need a little bit of hope. Ah, so that's it, guys. Six major stories. 2020, one hell of a year. At the very least, I want to say to all three of you, Nack, Sam, Daniel, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being with me as a friend, as a co-host, as a member of this of this podcast that also gave you know we 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 ushered in this this podcast of ours this year that's another nice thing about 2020 history will look kindly at 2020 because of this (laughs) because of the start of friendly reminder yeah but i want to thank daniel sam knack thank you so much for for joining me today thank you gus thank you for having me Thanks for having me back. Of course. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sticking around with us this entire year. I hope you stick around next year. We're going to, you know, keep pumping these things out and we appreciate every single listen. I hope everybody celebrates the holidays safely, celebrates the end of the year safely, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Friendly Reminder.